You're tuned into the Arc Sober Recovery Podcast. My name is AJ. I'm not an addiction counselor, specialist, or professional. On this podcast, you'll hear discussion regarding 12-step recovery programs and how they have impacted our lives. However, the podcast is not a promotion or an endorsement of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. The opinions shared on this show are those of the individual speaker. If you or someone you love is suffering from addiction and needs help, call Recovery Centers of America at 1-855-487-9626. There you will find detox, inpatient and outpatient services in Danvers and Westminster, Mass. Not all locations have the same services, so check the website recoverycentersofamerica.com. In addition to the two Massachusetts facilities, you can find two facilities in Maryland, five facilities in New Jersey, and two in Pennsylvania. Another recovery treatment option is Banyan Treatment Center. The number here is 1-888-643-1286. Locations include Massachusetts, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Also, help with addiction can be received at Foundations Recovery Network, foundationsrecoverynetwork.com, 844-675-1197. Locations include California, Georgia, Illinois, Michigan, and Tennessee. Oxober Recovery Podcast, Episode 22. Courtney, so we're doing a little test here. So um, you just came from, I don't know where you came from, but thank you for coming. Danvers, right down the street, six what minutes a, away. What a riot. And um, we were talking about like, yeah, wearing a mask and stuff like that. This is the first, this is the first time I've had somebody here in, I think it's like 18 months. Craziness. But it's like, uh, it's fun. You know what I mean? We get the message out. It's a recovery podcast it's for whoever a lot of people in here practice the 12 steps of aa i've had some people in na but it's all good like it's all like recovery it's all people who have come to a point where they can't do it alone Mm -hmm. right and their life has become unmanageable that's how i look at it Mm -hmm. 100 percent. so you came we were kind of chatting about masks and stuff like that and um yeah like i mean i've been vaccinated um and I'm to the point where, like, you know, I'm, we were talking about lear- you know, learning about what they're offering us. Mm-hmm. I'm like, sunlight, outside, I'm vaccinated, I'm not wearing a mask. Like, I'm just, I'm just not. And I don't know, maybe some, and, and that's where the point where we are right now. Like, am I ignorant to some people? Maybe. Am I trying to be an asshole? No. You know what I mean? Right, right. So, yeah. I don't know where you stand on that. Yeah, no, I try to stay out of any of the controversy with that. Yeah. 
it's none of my business yeah. what people want to do how they want to live right. and i just do what's best for me and yeah. living in a in a mask every single day is really difficult so it is. it is you know i do the best i can to respect other people but yeah you know Same. being outside in 6 feet away from people i am not wearing a mask right. you know yeah. um the sunlight yeah. i've heard yeah. i mean i've learned this like that some and it's we were just talking about you know where do you get your information right so I, have, I gather my information from a bunch of different areas that I trust and from what I've gathered like the beach is one of the best places you can be sunlight totally people are spread apart yeah and you're outside yeah no yeah. I love the ocean too yeah so um <laughs> there's a couple drinks right there Thank I, you. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna have a salsa okay great have one yeah and there's a salsa for you and a water I'm good thank and, you so um, much. and this is so cool and you saw the Tar Tarantino poster. I love Pulp Fiction, yeah. Me too, yeah. right? My kids bought that for me for uh, Father's Day. Oh, cool. Like, how cool is that? Yeah. Like, framed and everything. Yeah, oh, that's great. And uh, I watched it with them. It's weird. Like, I, I still, like, I could watch it a hundred times. Yeah, me but too. The dialogue yeah. and, and yeah. uh the first time I saw it when it came out was like 1994. Yeah, yeah. But oh, I was only kid. I was only like 12, 13 years old. Yeah, <laughs> mm. but I was smitten. I was like, whoa! And the soundtrack is just unbelievable. Oh, it is. Yeah, it is. I know. So, um, yeah. So, welcome here. We're just gonna kind of yeah. chat, and um, I met you like three weeks ago. Yeah, at the RCA, I think. Yeah, right? yep. yep. So, tell me about you. So, what are you up to right right now? You, you're. Uh, designer your uh, oh yeah so what I do for a profession um, yeah. I'm in the middle of a career change I um, used to decorate cakes and oh, I yeah. used to be a baker I was in the culinary world for a long time before I transitioned to, into d cakes and desserts um, but I in my mid 30s like a few years ago because I'm 39 I just had a birthday on April 19th but uh, it's um, it's been interesting because in sobriety I've had all of these physical ailments start to come about you know it wasn't um, something that I ever had had a problem with before but um and so because of that I got um diagnosed with hypermobility syndrome which you know all that really means is that the muscles have to work extra hard to keep your joints in line and so if you're like always on your feet lots of wear and tear in your body um you know day in day out like that's what I was doing in the restaurant world right. in, in the bakeries is that it's the quality of life became uh really painful you know I was like crying after work and stuff so this is the thing because of recovery I was able to like learn how to ask for help and like communicate with like the people that are closest to me and see like if there was another option and, and the people that are the closest are my parents right now mm -hmm. and because of recovery and because of the way that I've lived my life and made amends and stuff like I'm like two different people in one lifetime and so right. they're more than happy because they're in a position to to be able to help me and so they were able to help me go back to school and like oh. find a, a career where I could be creative but also sit down and so graphic design became something that came up in my morning meditation by trying to ask my higher power, God, whatever you want to call it, for help. And so that was just something that I never knew that I was going to love as much as I do now. And I thought decorating cakes was like the only thing. I was really good at it. You know, like I really was. Yeah. It was something I didn't want to give up, but it was, it, it became a point where it was like, okay, God really is everything or God is nothing. And so I know that God wants me happy, joyous, and free today. And so how do I actually participate in my own life in order to like, you know, take corrective measures and learn more and remain teachable. And so going back to school was a very humbling experience at 30, you know, I was probably 36 when I first started that journey and being around a bunch of 18 year olds, you know, and right. it was like really much about the 10 step practice where I had to like 
keep watching for when the negative thoughts would come up, the self-pity, thinking that, like, I shouldn't have to be doing this right here, right now, and, you know, turning my thoughts to, like, how can I be helpful, and then also, like, I know God wants me to, like, continue to face the challenges in my life with his help, and that's what has been able to happen, and the thing was, I don't mean to talk too much, but, like, school, I never did well in, so, like, going back to school is, like, a miracle for me, because I had, like, learning disabilities, I cheated my way since third grade. Yeah, like I ne- I always wanted the easiest, softer way. Same. Didn't want to actually, you know, study or take what it took to like really try to like participate in school. I just thought it was like pull, you know, like wasn't whatever. Like, for, yeah. Not to interrupt you, but wasn't no, yeah. it like for me too? And it was just easier. It was yeah. more in my nature to take yeah. an angle. Yeah. Oh yeah. It was, it was, oh yeah. It, it, to find the, oh, I was yeah. good at that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Me too. Yeah. Let me let me just say something totally. quick because we're gonna. I want to. This is awesome. Yeah. Your parents. Wow. Yeah. Number yeah. one. Yeah. Right? And we'll talk about them. Yeah. That meditation that you talked about. Did that happen? Was that a one morning thing that happened, or was it over time? Like, how did that look? What did what was that looking like? So the book talks about in the eleventh step when in decision. You know, like we ask God. You know, and and I'm misquoting it because it's not in front of me, and I'm not like a big book thumper where I can like memorize the big book. But I practice and I read it every single morning. And um, you know, when in decision, like we ask for God's help, and like I didn't know what to do with all of that, and so it didn't just come overnight, but it. It started to look like, okay, you know what, like the inventory here is like, if I do know that God really wants me happy, joyous, and free, and I really won't let go of what I think it needs to look like in order for me to have a career path, where am I not holding God's hand in that? And so I got to like, look at the fact by help with a sponsor and, you know, my own personal inventory, because I've been doing this for like eight years, like just seeing like, okay, like what can I participate on? You know, like what can I, so I tried to investigate. So I looked into schools. I looked into like what it would look like for me to like try to get my transcripts, the one, like, cause I barely graduated high school. Like, would they accept me? You know, like I didn't know how it was gonna, I had no idea, but I got to do research and I got to ask questions. And then people that had gone back to school, I got to ask them what that looked like for them and using other people's experience. So it wasn't just like a quick overnight thing, no. So it's 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 yeah. so cool, right? Because yeah. I I listened to this song. It's called Rattle. It's by Hill Hillsong Worship. Okay, I, don't know if you I never it, heard of it. No, right? and they uh, we just I just listened to it with my buddy this morning. It's it's freaking awesome. I'll send you the link to the video, right? And they say one of the big refrains in it at the at, in the end of the song. It says God says move, and it was like you were moving. Like yeah. the, I'm hearing you say yeah. like you were moved. You you moved your feet. And you did work and through like meditation and yeah. all this stuff. I mean, pain was a huge motivator. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. That was what helped me to start looking for other ways to continue on with my life. I think pain, you're right, is a huge motivator. And uh, it's tough to re- it's tough to recant, re- whatever, rehash it and stuff like that. But I feel like we have, I feel, I don't know if we, I was going to say we have to, I feel like it's good for us to do it for the sake of others who are going through shit. Yeah. 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 So let's, let's, I mean, I like to, you know, this, this podcast is great because I like to hear people's story. Then I, we put it out and it's like the the old tapes. I don't know. Like they talk about the old speaker tapes, right. And they're literally on cassette tapes. Yeah. And, 
You had them. Did you have them? Are you old? No, I didn't have any AA cassette tapes. No, no, no. But regular tapes. I've had. Did you have rock and roll tapes? Oh, absolutely. Okay, so oh, you were, yeah, no, you were yeah. in that. You didn't. Oh, you, I had tapes. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. some of these younger kids, yeah, just know, they never even had them. Yeah, yeah, some of them just know digital. I still saved mine. I still hold on oh, to them. You got your, you got your yeah, cassettes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so putting this on tape virtually, but like it's a digital. Yeah. Form, yeah, right, and we get the message out, yeah, and it's like no, it's people in across the world can listen if they absolutely if they're looking for it. So that's what we're doing here. We're trying to share a message. Of recovery, yeah, no, right? thank you so much. Yeah, so let's do it. Let's go back. Like, um, so where you know, like, I don't know. I'm interested to find yeah. out about you. I don't know anything about you. So yeah. you were born in this area. So I was born in Revere. Yeah. Um. You know, I uh, grew up in Wakefield, though. Okay. Um, what happened was, um, my father's old school Italian, and that's where he was brought up. And the Catholic schools that he wanted me to go to, because he didn't want me going to Revere public schools, you know, whatever that was going on back then. But he thought that that would be the right way to go, and so. So because I had two cousins that were Hellions um, that had the same last name as me, they didn't want any more of what my last name was to be accepted into that school system. And so my father started looking for the suburbs area. And so we moved to Wakefield at around like four or five years old. So, yeah. Is your father come over from Italy or? Well, no, his parents did though. But yeah, yeah. Is he, did you guys have like, was he a gardener? Did he like grow vegetables and stuff? So my dad is like poor growing up, but he's self-made like like he's he's got his own business like whatever and like yeah like food is everything I love so it. we have to have you know a garden and his he, compost pile is gold it's so you great. can't you can't it's a great way to live yeah no it's nice yeah i've learned a lot from right? yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, you eat from the earth like yeah. i talk about now yeah um we got to take care of ourselves mentally physically yeah. and spiritually yeah. so physically is totally. like eating yeah. right and yes. you know they had he those guys had it had it right like yeah. you eat you grow you eat from the earth i heard somebody say once think of it like this eat more things that are come from the ground and off of trees and yep. less things that come in boxes and totally. plastic bags processed foods <laughs> right? is the enemy absolutely so, so yeah. yeah so did he make his own yeah. sauce and stuff oh like absolutely that? oh, yeah. oh yeah. yeah no i mean i've never i've never had you know canned t- is it sauce or is it gravy well yeah we do call it sauce but yeah no the because the, the, the gravy was the meat sauce but i am really picky so that's why it's sauce because he's learned not to to get so hung up on the fact that i'm not going to eat his gravy <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Because I didn't like chicken feet. Like, there's like all these things that he would make. He made it from like the real scratch. Yeah, like home, oh, home. old style. Yeah, old style. Absolutely. That's what his parents did. Yeah, yeah. All right. So yeah. So you were gonna go to school. You were gonna go to school. You were gonna go to. Yeah. So we went to. So I went to Wakefield schools, and I um I just never felt like I fit in though. Like I always was really insecure. Um, and I couldn't pay attention. It seemed like everyone else knew how to like sit well in school and be obedient and I was just mischievous I was just always um, talking or not paying attention and I did later get diagnosed with like ADD you know or ADHD but um, I don't know you know like that's you're hyper yeah I was very hyper yeah that's what we used to say yeah Yeah. very mischievous yeah yeah Yeah. 
Yep. So running around yeah. youngest of what are you? So I have two half siblings that are like 15 years older than me. Okay. From my dad's previous marriage. Um, and then I have um, a younger sister who is my full sister and she's 19 months younger than me. And that's from my mom now. Yep. Yeah. My parents have been together for almost 30 years, but you know, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So did you end up going to Catholic so I did not have to go to Catholic schools. Um, they they didn't mind Wakefield Public Schools because it was a better. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Better demographic, I guess. I yeah, guess. yeah. I, I don't really know, don't but know. that's what it. Yeah, that's what was happening. Yeah. It was just like Revere was considered because he he grew up in Revere and he didn't like how it was all changing. I don't know what his thoughts were really on that. We don't know his thoughts. Yeah, but it's still yeah. it's funny. I guess ultimately yeah. he was looking out for you, right? Yeah, that's the bottom line. Yeah, you know? I mean absolutely. He, yeah. they tried to do the best they could to like give us you know like a good upbringing but yeah. realistically yeah. like yeah. if we thought about that now yeah. and i don't know how different it was back then but yeah. shit goes on in schools oh yeah you know no. what i mean no 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 maybe yeah. there was yeah. more at revere i mean i don't i don't know i don't know if it would have mattered but i think just... i would have ended up the way i ended up anyway that's what i'm trying to say like i really feel like i was born with this disease mm. anyway mm. um it does run deep on both sides of my family okay. um there's a lot of mental illness addiction and alcoholism you know so it's not um something that i feel like i was ever going to escape mm. and ever since i was a little kid you know i was addicted to people I was addicted to um, sugar I was you know just I just was addicted to being mischievous too like I needed attention I don't know so there's a lot of things that mm. were clear red flags even back then but there was a lot of stigma with this and this wasn't talked about as much as it is now you know so like, a lot of people didn't understand any of that what was going on back then too because um you know by the time that I was like third, fourth grade or whatever, there was teachers keeping me in during recess and like I was dressed in black and they were wondering like, oh, is there, you know, there was like a lot of red flags that they would say to my parents about things. Um, and so my parents just thought like I just liked black. So I was wearing black, you yeah. know, like no one really over overthought it. Mm -hmm. um, you do the best you can with where you come from. Yeah. And that's what my parents absolutely did. But they come from craziness too, you know. Right. And so they tried their hardest to not make the same mistakes or to learn from those mistakes. But right. at the end of the day, you yeah. know, you, you don't do what really you can know. do as a parent. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So it comes back to that. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah, you went on, you were dressing in black. <laughs> well, I mean, so then there's this other piece that yeah. I didn't really get to talk about because yeah. I didn't really jump into it. But the thing was, was because my parents really worked hard and they wanted to play hard and it was the 80s, it was like a different time period. Like we weren't screening babysitters. Like they didn't realize that they couldn't just like, you know, like there was like a lot of, it's a different world back then. So like my mom would, and not because she thought, she thought she was being a good parent by finding a babysitter to begin with. So like what had happened was after school on a Friday, she would see the high school girls walking home and she would just randomly say, hey, are you oh. around to babysit tonight? We pay well. And, you know, and so there was a lot of different young women that were watching me and my younger sister and not everyone is, um... Well, you know, like not like people come from different families. And so I had a babysitter that molested me and my younger sister um, for a long time that we never talked about. Mm. And my parents didn't know about it because 
my sister and I loved this woman and she told us if you tell we're not you're not going to see me anymore and we didn't understand and it's just so much crazy that goes on within that and then you know just like no one really real knowing what's going on there was no nanny cams back then no. you know and it's not that they ever imagined that that would be no. the case that would happen and they thought oh we're get we're doing the right thing we're having someone watch the kids while we go out and let loose you mm. know and like that's that's what they did every Friday and Saturday night mm. So that was a lot of trauma and abuse that ended up coming about as a result of that. Um, And then also, like I said, my father's old school and, you know, he got a heavy hand dealt like with the backhanders and the belt and stuff like that. And this was before it wasn't okay to not really hit your kids. It was starting to become a way of life to not hit your kids. But this is still the 80s. And, you know, like you keep your kids in line and that's just how he got brought up. And so um, I was so mischievous that I definitely got, you know. (laughs) <laughs> I got the heavy hand with that but it's not you know like the thing is is like because of the work I understand how he like he was trying to straighten me out my sister didn't get it she um she was good she was quiet you know and it wasn't like he would just hit me for no reason like I was like do what I want when I want like didn't even care yeah. no matter what the consequences were it was like yeah. a bigger drive you know right I was gonna yeah. say that probably yeah. made you want to go out and yeah. do more shit yeah yeah, yeah. So you're like what sixth, fifth, sixth grade now? So, um, so. yeah. So like, I started my first drink was at like eleven years old. So that was like fifth grade probably. Jeez. Yeah, I started really young. But the thing was, I was seeing all the people party. Like my family had a lot of parties going on. You know. Okay. So like after they would go out on a Friday or Saturday night, they would drive the babysitter home, and then they would still be partying. Cause like once you put it in your system, you know, it's like. Yeah. And I'm not saying I don't know if they identify as alcoholics or not. I was thinking that. But I'm saying, right, like, the thing is, is when they drink, it doesn't look like what I drink, and they still can manage their lives, so I don't know what they have to do, but they definitely party to the like you know it was like foreigner playing on the speakers oh, yeah, like man. I mean yeah. like cold as ice like I could just remember like, the bass at like, one in the morning yeah exactly like that makes me think and and let's remember where we yeah, are there yeah but um yeah like I used to you know I stopped drinking eight years ago and my kids are 18 and 16 now. yeah very close to that, that yeah yeah they're 18 and 16 and um if I didn't stop drinking, and so they were, they were uh, ten and and eight. But before that, we were partying here. Yeah, they were ten and eight. Yeah. They were going like they weren't even going to bed. We'd have people over. Yep. You know, six couples. Right, right, exactly. That kind of and up thing. till one in the morning. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, so I, mean, I can, I, I hear you. They, yeah, like, they we were just having if fun. If I look at it right now, yeah. we were partying. Yeah, no, yeah, and we had like a backyard with like a pool and like you know, summer things. Like there was just okay, all it was these, the house. You had was, the house. We they had the house. They had a lot of. This is the thing. This was before, like, because now uh my fam and this is before COVID. It's like one by one the relationships and the friendships that they had and the family members was a big family everything alcoholism that runs in your family you know causes a lot of resentment and bitterness and selfishness and I mean and I'm not talking about just my parents like I'm talking about like extended family everyone like just everyone yeah Yeah. like all the people that you drink like that with you know like if they're group yeah so it's um, you know it's now not the same that it was at all like my parents have aged too and they're just like chill but it's like they've mellowed out as they've grown up 
<laughs> but um, it was a way of life. Yeah. It was a way of life. Exactly. And it's what I thought was normal. Right. And I was around it. And yep. because I was like 11 going on 25, that's just my personality. Got it. I just saw it, whatever. And, it. and one day I saw this bottle where no one was looking. They didn't let me drink. It no. wasn't like that. Nope. And it was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do what they do. Right. And I just started taking it and I chugged it and it burned. Yeah. But the thing was, I got the effect. I got the relief. And I couldn't even believe. I couldn't even believe it. And I wasn't doing it with just other friends. I was like, this is what I It was something bigger than me that just drove me like, this is attractive. Wow. Like, this is what I want. And for some reason... I got the effect and that solidified it even more. Mm. And all that craziness, like the trauma when I was a kid, like all that stuff that like comparing myself to everyone, like I was never good at school, like always getting the heavy hand from my father. You know what I mean? Just like whatever it was, shut off. Mm -hmm. That's what alcohol did for me. That's what makes me an alcoholic. Not all the stuff and the circumstances that I come from, it treats all the circumstances that I've come from. It makes it go away. Mm. You know, it gives you that instant relief. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is what makes me an alcoholic. And then because once I got a taste of what that could be like, I mean, I chased it. Like mm. it didn't matter. And since the age of 12, I was using something, not just alcohol, um, to get my hands on, to get relief. Because now I was like, oh, this is what I want. This is a substance, anything. And for a long time, it looked like marijuana. Mm. It looked like um, anxiety pills that my parents were prescribed that I would steal, mm -hmm. um, that I had access to. It looked like drinking all the alcohol on their bar and then filling it with water and thinking that they weren't going to know. <laughs> I mean, I just did whatever I could when I could, you mm. know? And um, It's yeah. so funny. Like, you yeah. say that you're 12, 13, yeah. 14 yeah. doing that? Yeah. Filling up, filling. Oh, yeah. I knew how to manage and manipulate already. Go ahead, yeah. And But yeah. no, but I'm 40 yeah. and I'm doing that. Yeah. So yeah. even though yeah. it's a 40-year-old yeah. and a 13-year-old- we're friggin' still drinking the booze yeah. from the bottle and filling it right. with water. Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, I was very resourceful. I think most alcoholics are. You know, like you do what you need to do in order to like get away with stuff. Yeah. But I'm also yeah. too, I'm pointing out yeah. that the difference in how we're all different. Oh yeah. How we're all different. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm listening to your story yeah. and and mine is totally different. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But totally. the end result's the friggin' same. Oh, absolutely. And the beginning's the same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. When you think about it, right? Yeah. The beginnings are the same. We have a disease Absolutely. and we can't put one in us. Yeah. And the end is the right. same because we fucking, everything becomes unmanageable. Yep. We lose it and we become virtually hopeless. I know totally. I did. Absolutely. So yeah, 13, 14, 15, you were running with a crew. Did you run? Were you the leader? Like what was up? Like so, what? So <laughs> so I lived on? a double life. Oh, a double well, life. because well because my parents were so strict. So it was do okay. as we say, not as we do. Right. And so my father had a heavy hand, like I said. So like if I if I got you know if I like you know got in trouble if they caught me drink like whatever it was because I was drinking before. So now it treated my social anxiety. So I didn't realize how afraid of people I really was um, until. Until I actually would have a drink. I mean, then I could talk to anyone. You know, I just really had a lot of stuff. Um, fear. It was fear that was really ruling my life. And um, and so I just thought everything was about me. And even though it wasn't about me being better than, I always felt like I was not enough, like not worthy. But it was still me always thinking about me. And so, like, you know, I 
was always afraid to talk to people. And then once I had alcohol in my system, I could I could talk to anyone. Mm-hmm. So I started bringing alcohol because I was like, wow, this is going to help me get through school. This is going to help me actually. Because in, when I was young, I was mischievous, talkative, a chatterbox. But then as you get into your teen, like, you, you know, like that adolescent, where everything's all uncomfortable and you just don't know what's going on with your bot, like whatever, that. you know? Yeah. And it's like, you start getting that self-centered fear that just starts generating. You can't even, you know, you can't even really pass it. Like you can't even like not like escape it is what I'm saying if you've got that kind of mind, you know? Mm. And that's like, the thing was, was that now I had alcohol to deal with all of that. And so I ended up drinking on an empty stomach before like school would start at 7 a.m. I would take their absolute vodka and it was clear and I would put it in Poland Springs bottles and then it would just look like I had a bottle of water. Did that. And I just drank before school, chugging it. And one day I drank too much and I didn't have like a stop. Like I didn't really, you know, no one, you know, you don't really know. Yeah. And um, I got suspended for the first time in ninth grade. So I was like 14, 15 years old, I think. And um, the principal called my parents and he said, I've been doing this for a long time. And he said, your daughter is an alcoholic. He goes, this is not normal behavior. Wow. And, that's, and that was the first time that my parents were like, uh, they your principal thinks you're an alcoholic. Like we're going to start, you know, bringing you to the therapist and cause we don't really know what to do with you because it wasn't, it was just behavioral stuff. It was just a lot of stuff that was going on too. Yeah. I think that yeah. guy was amazing. Clearly he knew about alcoholism. He, yeah, he had yeah. some experience yeah. with it, whether it was him or his family. I'm not sure. But yeah. he, well, he identified yeah. you and yeah. he told your parents. I right. mean, I think that's pretty, I think that's awesome. No, it was good. He was trying to help, but you know what it was? My parents and I both didn't understand Well, the that's disease. what I was going to say. You guys, so they're looking yeah. at it. I would have, if I didn't know anything about yeah. it, I would have looked at this guy She's and go. She's just having fun. We're yeah. We're going to leave school. We're going to change schools. This guy's a freak. Well, they. they <laughs> that's what I would have been saying. They knew. Right. Well, and that's the thing. And like, because it was like, you know, everyone's got an idea about an alcoholic that might be just like a homeless guy stricken out of a brown paper bag, you know? And like, you don't really know that it like sets off the phenomena craving. Like once you start, you can't stop. And then like the mental obsession that like even though you're 100% sober because it gives you such relief that like you really are ruminating in your head constantly about getting the next one and so you're gonna like manage and manipulate in order to like make sure that those circumstances are all in place so that you actually can make that happen for yourself at 14 years old or 15 years old you know at four yeah. it's crazy yeah, yeah. That- First of all, I think it's unbelievable that you can recount this, like you can recount this and, yeah. and like yeah. put flags in it yeah. as you tell your story and learn about it and yeah. purge it, yeah. right? And yeah. peel the onion back, like they say, right? This, this is, um, like, it's amazing. Yeah. It's what a what a gift, like, you've been given that oh, you can absolutely. do this. absolutely. That has everything to do to with To uncover, like, yeah. right? Take yeah. the sheets off and expose it. Yeah. No, it's I always had the to best way, it. right? Yeah. It's tough to, like, we keep things hidden. You push them yep. under the rug. Yep. Before you know it, I heard a guy say it this morning. You get a mound of shit under the rug. Yeah. Feelings, thoughts, yeah. resentments. Everything. And then you just become overwhelmed with it. Totally. But, um, yeah. so th- you've done a lot of work, I've had to do a Courtney. lot. I've had to do a lot. I and had you to. you can tell. And this yeah. Is, this yeah. Is, this is good. Hopefully, I mean, I th- I think this is like a great way to do it. Like yeah. to treat yourself like yeah. a person like you who's fifth, 14 years old, full-blown alcoholic and the principal freaking yep. knows. Yep, yep. And So your parents yep. were like... Um, I guess I'm hearing you say they they didn't really know what alcoholism was, so they were like, "Okay, you got an issue. We're gonna send you to a doctor." Right. 
it was like, okay, you know what? We don't know how to handle her anymore. All the, you know, groundings, the backhand, whatever, wasn't working. So now we're going to see what we can do. And they were trying to do the best they could, yes. you know? Yes. And they were like, okay, we're going to bring her to some doctors because mm-hmm. we don't really know. And so I started my journey with psychiatrists and therapists, you know? And right off the bat, I got diagnosed with a whole bunch of things, you know? And um, they thought that that was going to be the answer, you know? And the thing was, is that I have an uncle who's schizophrenic and we have mental illness like borderline personality disorder and bipolar and depression in the family not my parents but it's in there yep. so and that was because it was so much stigma that back then like no one was really getting treatment for it it was really you know had to be like real big consequences for someone to end up getting into the hospital for things that they were doing whatever it was and so they thought that maybe I might have have some of what some of these other members had to. Do you see what I'm saying? So they were very much like, okay, we're going to have to treat that. We're going to have to do something. Yeah. That's that's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's just talk about that for yeah. a minute, about awareness, yeah. mental mental health Absolutely. awareness. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it's in my family. You know, my mother has, uh, has um, you know, mental illness. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it goes, you know, sometimes it goes untreated. And totally. it's ugly. Yeah. And for a long time- in the 70s, in yep. the 80s, yep. it was no treatment. Right. She did, we didn't know. No, she didn't yeah. know. I mean, so it got ugly. But I feel yeah. like right now, today, I think it, it's um, it's good. It is good. It's good. And people, um, you hear people talk about it. The stigma, I think, has been lifted yeah. quite a bit. Quite a bit. You know? Especially and, uh, in the 90s, because it was like Prozac Nation. You know what I mean? Oh like that whole God. time period. And that's when I started going to the psychiatrist. That's when that whole, uh, the 90s era, you know, where the depression, mus- grunge music is coming out. Everyone's talking about it. suicidal I ideation know. and, you know, substance abuse and, you know, depression, all of it. That's like, that's what I started you th- to come Oh, out. you think that was, yeah, that's a good point. Oh, no, yeah. 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 It was a break from, because in the 80s, all the music, was well I mean not all of it but there was a lot that was like hair bands and fun and partying and not serious stuff and then the 90s come in and it's like this big shift because it's like no there is stuff going on that people need to know about and that's what has happened I think with a lot of the artists from that time period I love that you just brought that up I'm a big music fan yeah no me too yeah and um huge fan of 90s yeah music yeah me too um music gives me is one of my tools actually yeah. to keep my head straight. Oh, me too. During Absolutely. the day, right? Yeah. And I never thought about it that way. Like I'm gonna yeah. think about this now. Thank you for this. I I didn't never really even thought yeah. about the grunge music, the lyrics. You're right. What they were talking about was um, there's a lot of mental health awareness yeah. in that music. There really is. That's, and I thought that Kurt Cobain was writing music for me. Wow. That's what I really thought because I had nowhere else to turn and I just identified so much with what his music was saying, you know? And it was like, oh, he is it for me. Like that's, he like became a higher power and I didn't even know that till I look back on it, wow. you know? But that's wow. that's what had happened, yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I could, yeah. we could, I could talk about that with you all day. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm gonna think yeah. about that totally. now. Yeah. Um, all right, so they, so yeah, they were helping you. They got you some doctors, and then how'd yeah. that go? Like, what did where did you? Well, so it was like, okay, so now I have this diagnosis of major depression, and take these antidepressants, and I don't sleep well at night. So now you have these sleep meds, and you know, and then it was, um, you know, I have an anxiety disorder. Okay, you know, so so it was like a few couple of those things it started with, and then. 
as my behaviors started getting worse, because even though they were giving me antidepressants to help it, um, I don't now they're starting to find out that when you give antidepressants to young teenagers that it can actually make suicidal ideation even worse it's Mm. a symptom um and so no one knew that though and so what had happened was i sat self um mutilating myself and cutting myself and i'm listening to more grunge music which is not the problem that's not what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. but it was because i related so much and i identified with what they were saying and um i just but they were very scared because they were like okay what is going on because now i'm not getting any better i'm actually getting worse Mm. And I'm not saying that the meds were making me worse. I think it was just going to be that way. And Mm. I wasn't really opening up fully to what was going on. And so what had happened was um, I had gotten caught again for drinking. The date is always burned into our brains. It was um, November November 8th, um, 1997. And it was, you know, my parents had let me go to the boyfriend's house that I was dating and they were still picking me up because I wasn't driving yet. I was only 15. And so I ended up smelling like alcohol when they picked me up and they were like, we don't know what to do with you. They're like, the therapist keeps telling us to put a chins on you. Um, You know, we really, we really have been trying to do our best to help you. And they've been fighting with each other on what to do with me. A chins is, is an order that you need to stay home and in contact with your parents. Is that? Well, it's like like the state can that to actually, you know, um, imp- like that, like what they were telling me yeah. is that if you continue this behavior, and I think they were using it as a scare tactic. I don't know if they were serious or not, yep. but this is what they were telling me, and it was like, now you might have to go into foster home because we're unfit to be able to t- t- to take care of you because you're not listening to us. Okay, so it's not really that. That's not like the real definition. Like, like people can like the courts come in and they can like either drug test you or try to make you more accountable in that way because you're like a. Like a um, like the Woodville was a school for misfit kids. It was like problem adolescent kids that were no longer able to be like in the normal school systems. Okay. And so like the, all of these things were starting to get talked about about implementing like what I had to do. Um, and they were trying to scam me straight. And I don't think they were pretending to talk about all of this stuff. But I didn't understand fully all of it. Sure. You know what I mean? You're and it was kid. like right. And like and they're telling me. You know, so, and that was the thing. So, like, I was already starting to get drug tested through them, through the doctor. Like, just like they would have me go to the doctor's office because it wasn't a quick cut back then. Right. It was different. Um, and then they, you know, would tell me, oh, you came up positive for, you know, Xana, like, um, you know. Um, Stuff that you were taking unprescribed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, and like marijuana and like, and then they told me that they could test for LSD because I thought they couldn't. Like all of this stuff, yep. but I was taking everything. Yeah. Like I yep. didn't care what it was. And even though yeah. you were getting tested, you were still taking yeah, it. Yeah, like I couldn't stop. And I would even, and this is the crazy part, when I thought that maybe a drug test was coming up, my sister, who was such a good kid, she was not doing what I did because yeah. she was so scared and yeah. she didn't, she wasn't the same person she yep. started later actually that that's the crazy thing we come from the same family two different you know personalities and she ends up going in na at age 18 and getting sober before i did now not sober but was for four years before I ever even was thinking about trying to get sober. And I start really young and she saw all the stuff I did and she stayed out of the limelight. She was more quiet, yeah. more reserved and a good kid. But then, so she would piss in a Poland spring bottle for oh, me. Well, I was with the Poland spring bottles yeah. and yeah. I would bring it with me 
And then if I knew I was going to get a drug test or if I did have to get a drug test, they weren't watching me back then. This was before they even knew to watch me. And I would pour it into the into the cup at the doctor's office and I would run hot water mm. and I would add a little hot water to get the temp get up. The temp like, up. Who taught me that? I know, right? Like, the- I don't even know. Like, it just came naturally. Yeah, you were good at angling. That was it. Craziness. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah. <laughs> it's just crazy. Yeah. It is. And the work, right? Yeah. All, All the effort and the energy and going into that. Oh, yeah. So that's the thing. So that night, like what I was trying to say is when they told me that they don't know what to do with me. This is what's going to happen. Pack your bags. We're going away for the weekend. Um, and then on Monday, when we meet with your therapist, we're going to we're going to see what else we can do we'll here because you need more like this, like whatever it is. And so that's the thing. Like I was like the best thought that entered in my head. And I had written my first suicide note in that July and I didn't use it. And then um, I just knew that the heat was really on this time and that I wasn't going to escape it. And it's like, you want to take away like the one thing that is like making me feel like I can be okay, which is like alcohol and drugs. Like I don't want to live. And so, and the thing was like, I thought my best thinking was, you know, if I just kill myself, like then my parents can have their lives back. I don't have to be a menace to society. Society. And the thing was, was I was brought up Catholic, even though I didn't go to um, Catholic schools, but I did have to go to OC, uh, CCD and other, you know, like whatever it was like sure. that my parents tried to do what they thought was taught for them. Yeah. And, um, and so I really did interpret God as a punishing God, because if you had my life, like now look at what's going on. There is no God. Yeah. And all the stuff I had gone through as a kid, like there is no God. Where was God? And um, I thought God was punishing and made me have the life that I had. Like those were the thoughts that I was having. And so I thought that committing suicide was the best thing that I could do and so that night I ended up packing for um, wherever we were going to go for the weekend and I saw my prescription meds from the doctors the um, antidepressant I had Zoloft and then the other one was Elevil which was sleep meds and I had no idea and they were full prescriptions that the Elevil was more um, deadly than the um, than the Zoloft but because the Elevil was small pink pills I just ended up just taking the whole bottle and I ended up um leaving the house after I did that and they didn't know I left and I and I was on foot and I went to my neighbor's house who was my best friend at the time he was a year older than me our fathers were business partners so like we were very close always like it was just like he was like a brother he wasn't anything more than that and I told him what I did and then I blacked out I don't remember anything and he told me that after I woke up from a coma three days later that he didn't know what to do and that he told his stepbrother who was I mean his um, brother-in-law that was older you know what I mean that was like in his 20s or something we were like kids you know I was like 15 and it seemed like they were like 80 but they're not yeah, um, yeah. and he said that we drove you to Melrose Wakefield and we kept hitting you trying to keep you awake and I don't remember any of it and then my parents noticed that I was missing from the house and they didn't know I went to the next door neighbor's house and so they end up going around Wakefield going back to my boyfriend's house thinking that maybe I ran away maybe I went back to him and they're searching everywhere for me and then they end up finding out somehow I don't know if it was the next door neighbor or what but they end up going to Melrose Wakefield and they end up seeing that the jaw like like literally they called Mass General in because um, Melrose Wakefield wasn't equipped to help me back then until like my father father literally went in the back even though they didn't want him to and they and he said that he saw them paddling me like his 15 year old girl like just like totally out like and they're like paddling me and I'm flatlined and they and he just he said it was the most 
horrifying experience oh, that he has ever, ever witnessed in his life. And that that day is something that he'll never forget. Mm. And um, and I ended up waking up three days later from that because I don't remember any of that. That's only what I've heard. And um, and. When I woke up, I had all this charcoal, all of these tubes, everything, and I was tied to the bed so I couldn't like hurt myself. And um, I was at Mass General now, and like they just and they just um, the nurses were so nice to me because I was only fifteen, and they just like it was like a heartbreaking story for a lot of people that witnessed it. Uh. And when I woke up, my parents were all around me, and like I think my sibling, my younger sibling, and I just remember crying because I didn't succeed, and I was like, why did I have to wait? up mm. and like that was where my best thinking was getting me even then it was just so the mental health stuff was just has been like a big big piece in my in my um story yeah. like it's just and that was the start of like a series so like that was the worst one and I just remember promising them like don't worry like I will continue to seek treatment and the fact that they sh showed me that they wanted me to live and that they loved me that they were going to do everything they could to help me that's when I realized from the dual diagnosis center that I was in after all of that like once you're in the uh, like after you're from the coma and you're ready to go they put you in dual diagnosis and it was my first locked psych ward. And so they ended up um, encouraging that I get honest. And so I started talking about the stuff that had happened with the babysitter. I started talking about all of these things that I was doing with alcohol and drugs. I started talking about the fact that, yeah, my father hits you know, hits me. Like I just started getting honest because my parents were like, Andrea, we want you to be okay. Like just please tell them everything. And so I, I took that. I really did. And I wow. really wanted to get better and I really tried. And that was the first time that I heard of AA because there was a commitment that came in and this older guy who I couldn't relate to, he was talking about how he lost his license, how he had a DUI, how he lost his kids, how he lost his job, like all of those things at 15, I didn't have to lose. So I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I didn't understand it yet still. And I just, thought that like oh that's an interesting story um and then from there after i got out of treatment which we've speeded up yeah, a little yeah, yeah whatever 15 years of thinking that okay i'll just go to aa to shut the people up just shut my parents up i'll try na i don't care what 12-step program you do you know whatever works for you but i just thought that meetings in aa were old people mm -hmm. talking about their cats and like I'm like too cool for school in my mind like I don't belong here yeah. like what are these people talking about because even though that guy had a very good interesting story the meetings after that in my area I couldn't find that had a message of weight and depth I had no idea what I was really up against I thought if I just went to a meeting then I was supposed to not to be able to drink mm -hmm. and that was not the case for me mm -hmm. because and I would wonder how come I can't be like everyone else mm -hmm. how come I'm still drinking even though I want to stay stopped the thing was alcohol was still working for me mm -hmm. even though it seemed like it didn't and the consequences are piling up I was only suffering with the consequences because people were getting in the way of my drinking and I wasn't an adult enough in order to like live on my own and do what I wanted when I wanted mm -hmm. it wasn't that I wanted to stop it was that they, they wanted, wanted me to stop and you didn't want to and I had no ever ever wanted to stop it was a way of life it was the only thing I knew and the people that I hung out with, you know, they, they, it was normal. It was the normal. Like, it was like. You were going to AA to keep people off your back. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't really doing AA, though. What were you doing in the background? Were you having. Oh, I you... would leave, smoke cigarettes. Yeah. I would steal the keychains off the table just to act like I went. I wouldn't stay for the whole meeting. Yeah. I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, um, 
it wasn't like there wasn't anyone I would talk to yeah. except for like my best friend who I would hijack with me to bring with me so that like we would like both have to like go in there be like a ninja and try to get the keychain you know and like oh the slip sign like we would try to time it you know like just whatever did you have yeah. any lengths of sobriety in those no, 15 years no oh. no so I think I had three months or maybe six months um, at the most because after I got out of there, I got scared for a little bit, but then it was just, it was just more managing. It was like, I started learning how to get even smarter about hiding it. You know, like it was just more about like, um, and then the other thing was because I would throw, I'm going to kill myself card. Do you see what I'm saying? So oh, like yeah. my parents were so scared. You had them. Yeah. You had I them had frightened. Them, yeah. What a mess. They were traumatized. So you were, so, yeah. so did you go, did you, what, what about high school? Did you go to that wood, 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 wood the Woodville? No. So I ended up, um, because of the suicide attempt when I was in, uh, ninth grade, uh, or was it 10th grade? Yeah, it was 10th grade. It was 10th grade. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of that, I got all special services in the school. So okay. it wasn't Woodville, but it was, they were they were making it way easier for me. I didn't have to. You got um, yeah, you had yeah, services. Yeah, I had services. I got to do art classes a lot. Um, and that kept me really, you know, like I really was interested in ceramics right. and, yeah. you know, stuff like that. But um, didn't. But the, and that's the thing, like the principal that I told you about, yeah. that, like told my parents, like yeah. everyone walked on eggshells around me I could do no wrong anymore really because they felt so bad for me do you see what I, I'm saying I, you've painted the picture yeah, yeah like they just and they would and the thing was like this, you know he would see me the principal he he was a good guy I had to make amends to him later on in, in yeah. my sobriety yeah, but yeah. I ended he would Andrea come over here what do you have in your pocketbook today empty it out and he would just like take my cigarettes like try to help me and then like when I would leave I got class skipper and the superlatives like most people get like best hair you got what? I, I got class skipper because, like, I just was such a. I just did what I wanted yeah, yeah, when I, I wanted, I and they really kind of pushed me through because they were just so scared, and I cheated my way. Still, I wasn't getting honest about, you know, like I had the services, so I didn't have to try as hard, so I'd have them write the papers for me. You know what I mean? I like, do. I just did the minimum to get by, and I milked it. I was a victim, and I milked it. That's really what had happened. It was entitlement. I was entitled. It actually made me worse. In some ways. So I know you were thinking like, oh, it was a spiritual, but it was in the beginning. It tr I tried to get the help, but then left to your own devices, you know, and if you really love to live a certain way, it's almost like, how yeah. are you really going to change those behaviors at that age? I had no, I had no uh, chance right. of like really not going that scale. Yeah. So I got worse. So the yeah. honesty went yeah. out the window. Yeah. You were honest there for a little while and that went out the window. Yep, and you went back Absolutely. to the old way. Yep. So you were run, you were running like crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So did you leave the house? How did it go? You graduate? Then what did you do? Like so, well, and that's the thing. So then, um, you know, my parents because I didn't have to take the GED, like I didn't have to like uh, have the the. Um, what was it called? Like MCAS, like none of those things. And they were like, okay, you don't have to go to college anymore. Since I was a young kid, my parents were like, when you're 18, you're out of the house, you got to go to college, all of this stuff. But because of that, they were like, 
No, you just got to make sure you're working. If you want to go to school, we'll help you. <laughs> maybe community college, maybe this. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And so I ended up um, really liking pastries and desserts. And so I started, because I was a sugar addict on, on top of everything else, <laughs> um, and I was hands-on. So like, if I wasn't good at something, I didn't try. So if I could only do the things that I was really good at right away. Like I was not, I didn't have patience. I didn't want to take- gratification. Yes, instant yeah. gratifi- gratification. Always. Yes. Um, I'm thinking yeah. about your parents. Yeah. And we'll. We'll. we'll so yeah. We're, we're at the point where you go start doing the bakery, which is like. Yeah. I, I'm a sucker for baked goods, man. Yeah. I love baked goods. Yeah. But your parents, right? So what a tricky, slippery, delicate situation. They yeah. want to help their daughter. Yeah. Your dad just saw her flatlined. Yeah. Paddled. Yeah. Three He's years loves, before. Yeah. Loves, love, love of his life, right? Yep. You know, Family like is everything. It's Family is everything. When you're Italian too, it's And like, yeah. he wants to support her, but in the meantime, he doesn't realize that she's sick and she's manipulating him. Yeah, yeah. Like, what a tough yeah. time. No, I had them wrapped around my finger. I think finger. about my daughter. Yeah. Like, my daughter's yeah. 18. Yeah, yeah. And all I would want is the best for right. her. Right, And, like, what an ugly shitty fucking situation yeah, yeah. no it was it was terrible shitty right and and the thing is is that i think al-anon is not talked about enough but like they were suggested to go to al-anon and yeah. like you know they chose to not do that you know yeah. and they didn't they they still don't choose to do that and yeah. that's okay like it's not like i don't know what other people need to do in order to like like i am the only one in my whole family now who is in recovery like yeah. out of anyone i know and this runs deep like i said and i and i do alanon and aa because i, like I have to i have to do both because there's so much sickness in my family and then there's so much with like the people that i know in aa and everyone i know so many people have died from this disease like it's just been insane like journey you know and um i went to a couple alan yeah. meetings early on yeah. and i learned about collateral damage okay yeah yeah and, yeah. and i never yeah yeah I, I didn't realize like how far that spreads but the thing was was like even though my parents really wanted to help me they didn't know how and so they enabled me of course they you know they, they didn't kept know. me living at home not yeah. worrying about having to pay my own bills fully you know but I did have to have something so whether it was school or a job so they weren't like totally saying don't have a you know what I mean I but do, they because they I got know, me a card you know what I'm saying of like course, just they stuff, didn't know about it thinking that it would help and I think about yeah. early on like I didn't yeah. know about it right and then I learned right. a little bit about it right yeah and then i got a little bit of time and i started to 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 try to help people and i had a kid ask me to sponsor him yep yep and i didn't know what the hell to do yeah so i asked my sponsor what he does and he taught me some stuff like you know what i mean so i think about that like you know, you pay, these other people don't know. They you don't, don't know. know about it unless you educate yourself on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and a good, a good play, an awesome place. Yeah. we just recommended um, a friend of ours. You know, wife who, you know, she she should go. Yeah, you know what I mean. Because Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you got to learn about it. Yeah, you know what I mean, it's like if you're ready to be honest and not yep. push the shit under the rug anymore. Right. That's a good place to start right. learning about the disease. That is right. a real thing. Right. A real progressive yeah. disease. It's just like type two diabetes. Yes. It's like uh it's like Alzheimer's. Yeah. It is in your body. It's not going anywhere. Yep. yep. But yep. you can treat it. Yep. Like it's treatable. Yep. Yep. You know, so you have once you you have to 
it's really powerful for a family to learn about that. And I don't yeah. think Al-Anon gets enough credit either. No, yeah. Yeah. And that was the thing. I had all these diagnoses too, not just the major depression, not just the anxiety, not just the ADD or the learning disabilities. Now on top of them, I had borderline personality disorder. Um, I had bipolar type two, mm. you know, and it was like, okay, so now she's really got to be, you know, um, supervised or at least being in therapy, like stuff like that. And so they, tried you know to like have this fine line where it was like okay we want to have our lives let's just think that she's going to grow out of this and keep getting treatment and she's going to be okay so they're almost in a little bit of a delusion Denial. too yeah. yeah yeah so well, you can't i mean yeah yeah right like he's like we said at the beginning yeah. there's no book on it there's, there's no, no book like, there's how no do you be a parent no, no yeah. right no yeah absolutely i say to my daughter yeah. i said to my daughter once and yeah. i shared this before yeah like, she was she's 18 so like two years ago she was 16 and doing yeah. 16 year old things yeah. and then pissed at me for something right yeah. one day and i go i go maddie all right help and this is through the program like re retreat get your thoughts together regroup yeah and then re-enter the situation yeah. and i'm like maddie like i've never done this <laughs> yeah work with me i have never been a dad right. to a 16 year old girl right i'm i'm it's a new experience I'm, yeah it's new to me yeah. I, I don't know so work with me i'll work with you right right, you right. Know i mean that's all i can tell you yeah like, no that's yeah but um so you were at the bakery you were baking well no so i ended up in restaurants first okay because Ooh. well because like that's the thing like i wanted to be a cake decorator and that cake deck job didn't work out because of drugs so <laughs> that's why i ended up getting in the restaurants because it was more i didn't even realize it but i had a cousin that knew someone at the federalist which is down on 15 beacon um which i mean on beacon street next to the state house where it was like a high-end restaurant and like so you know he got me a job there and the chef was like one of those chefs that are like, um, you know, Hell's Kitchen. Um, Chef Ramsey. Yes, exactly. Um, he was he was a character and a yeah. half. Um, but yeah, so I started working as a pastry cook. So not a pastry chef because you need a lot of school for that. But I was a pastry cook. And like I just ended up doing all their desserts, high end, like creme brulees and like learning a lot of stuff about the industry. Yeah. yeah. But the the restaurant world was great for an alcoholic like me oh. because you sleep all day you do your shift I worked I was always a hard worker even though I was still you know using things like I like that's how I prided myself yeah. on like I know how to work I know how to do stuff same and like I would just use whatever I could to manage it and not you know whatever and so afterwards we go to the bars we close the bars down and then I'm up because I'm not the regular drinker you know and so it's like I wasn't done till I was passed out you know and that would be like at four or five six in the morning whenever I could finally get myself home you know um, and I lived in Danvis at the time so we moved from Wakefield to Danvis at, uh, at around 18 years old like whatever 2000 and then I ended up um, traveling all the way into Boston for work and back and forth craziness and my parents thought like oh I'm doing whatever the restaurant industry you know like they just you know they just left it yeah yeah and so then yeah what'd you do you kept you kept well so that just like you know that seemed like a normal way to live yeah. like it was just my norm um but then you know the thing was was that how was your treatment at this point, your mental yeah, treatment. Yeah, so the so the, that's the thing. It was like, okay, let's try this meds, and I had seemed so I had been going 
out of psych ward still. So like that was the thing. Like I'd have a, a bout of major depression where I felt like killing myself. And most of the time it would be because I got caught doing something. And then it was like, okay, I need to go back into treatment. You know, and I would play that card. Mm. You know, I really would. But the thing was, was that I honestly felt like when things never went my way, I just wanted to die anyway. Mm. Like that was like this new pattern that was formed in my brain. Like, and I would always tell myself like when things get too hard, I can always kill myself. Mm. And so it became something that I became using as a crutch. Mm. And so for a while, though, drugs and alcohol, even in my 20s now, are still working for me. It's still fun um, for the most part. Um, it was, you know, now my parent, now I'm in my twenties and I seem to be more leveling off, but they don't really know what's fully going on. And they think I'm doing my therapy and, you know, and I'm still living at home. So, and I had a serious boyfriend and so I was always able to be at his house and his house where his mom didn't care what we did. So it was like very easy to hide out at that house and do whatever I was doing. So they didn't know the story. Yeah. So they didn't really, really know. Um, and they knew I smoked weed and drank yeah. but that was normal for them that was okay you know that was okay if she's yeah. gonna have a little weed to have to deal with the family party we know that she's gonna smoke first no problem right. they, they totally to allowed it cool on yes. as long, it's like you're painting the yeah. picture so it's yeah Man, eggshells, you said yeah, it earlier. Yeah. And they're like, they want to live their life, yeah. which is cool, right? Yeah. I mean, and they have a daughter who's 23, yeah. 24. And yeah. man, that must be, oh, that must be so tough. And it's like, you to don't live as a parent like that. But, yeah. You know, let's face it. I yeah. don't know your parents, but if they were like me when I'm partying, it was like, all right, if she's good, then right. my, my first thing is I'm getting out of work and we're going to have some totally. fun. Totally. My yeah. parents loved having a good time. And that's nothing wrong. You know, right. I'm not. No, yeah. I can right. identify. Right. I did it. Right. I did it for eight years yes. with my kids. Yes. I drove drunk with right. them. Right. I right. had Absolutely. bottles of Poland Springs yep. in my car right. and drank yep. in front of them while I was right. driving. Yeah. So I say all this yeah. because I have some experience yes. with it. I don't. I'm not saying I'm yeah. right or whatever. Yeah. I'm just saying I'm experiment. I'm experience. Yeah. I have experience in it. And I look over at that yeah. ballpark right there right yeah. now. And there's fucking nips all oh, over yeah. the place. I bet. And I'm going to yeah. tell you again from experience because yeah. I've done it at baseball yeah. games. I've coached my kids right, drunk. Right, right, right. And I've seen parents yeah. pour fucking yeah. drinks into their cup. I believe it. So I totally I'm not saying it's it. right or wrong. It is what it is. It, it is. Yeah. I mean, fucking A, it is wrong. I mean, I'm going to say it, it is, because, but I'm not, it's just, it's so, it's our people culture. People do it's what the they cu- can to get it's, by. Yeah. It's the culture yeah. and it's accepted. It's yeah. accepted to go down there to have alcohol in your cup. I see. And be, yeah, yeah, yeah. watch your kids. See, play. I don't know. Yeah. I wouldn't think but, it's accepted. I, f- I figured, I feel like they were hiding it, but yeah. maybe, maybe because yeah. I'm not a parent, so I don't know. Right. So maybe, maybe there's like a secret club that everyone's like, oh yeah, you got that one. Okay. It's kind <laughs> of a, it's not really a secret. Yeah. club it's known yeah i mean fucking I booze is yeah. out of control right now i see yeah no and it's totally taking the edge off people are home stuck this disease has been doing push-ups in the whole world right now no. like i had a cousin pass away during covid mm. because of his own mental uh you know al- alcoholism you know mm. it's it's mm. really sad because when no one's looking you know he didn't have to show up at work anymore he I got know. to actually not have to manage it as much Right. And it just took him out. Oh, quick. You know what I mean? Real quick. Yeah. So, but I was just saying, yeah. I was kind of defending, I guess I'm, I'm not defending your parents, but I understand. No, me totally too. And I understand too. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's because yeah. of this work. Because yeah. like, I, it's not their fault at all. It is because it's you not their fault. so hard. Yeah, no, it's the work. And Absolutely. Can, it yeah. is the work. And we're telling, yeah. that's why we're here to yeah. tell people, yeah. you know, there's a program. Yeah. 
where there's a solution yeah. for a disease of addiction. There is. You have to move. Yeah. And you got to move. I didn't know there was a program until my mid-20s. Um, like now it's like maybe 2011 is the first time. So I have been, so in my twenties, I was in and out of some psych wards, um, you know, but I didn't still do AA fully. Like I didn't know that there was a program of action in AA. I was still doing things to just shut everyone up and try to like keep everyone off the back. And I thought there was something just wrong with me now because I had been in and out of sober houses, treatment centers now, all of the stuff before I actually, um, my parents now. Because so now, so I had like a five year period right from high school where I seemed to be okay, where they thought I was, and it was manageable, and it was like fun still, and it was like whatever. But then it turned a corner where it got so bad, so dark, so quick, and like I'm waking up crying because I woke up, only able to get out of my bed if I knew that I'm gonna be able to get something that I need. And like now it's more powerful. It's mm-hmm. not just alcohol. It's crack. Like I'm addicted to crack. Mm-hmm. You know, like because the cocaine that I was like snorting on a regular basis now is not having the effect on me. So mm-hmm. I have to like progress into more. You know things that are going to give me more of an effect, and and I had to cook out the crap and learn how to like whatever. I don't mean to no, get into all that. No, I want. I mean, this is what well, I want to hear the truth. Well, and that's the, and that's the thing. So now I'm now it's not fun. It's not about having all the like-minded friends anymore doing this stuff. You know, cooking out. What so, does that mean? Okay, so because my parents were so hands-on, like whenever the thing, like the, the shit would hit the fan, they like had taken out my cell phone. They had taken away my cell phone, all my contacts. Like we have been through the ringer trying to keep me sober. Um, and so like I wouldn't even be able to like drive myself at work. My father's like, if you're going to live in this house, I'm going to drive you. Like trying to manage the stuff. Like yeah. he's really tried to help me. Yeah. Like everything that he could do. So he's like, that way you have no access to any of your contacts. We cleared out all your dealers, everything. Because they knew that I was just not doing well. I forget how many times I've gotten caught. How many Mother's Day, Mother's Day is coming up. Like how many Mother's Days I have ruined. Like just like where they've all their spoons are missing in the house and they're like, where are our spoons? So it's like the reason why I started cooking it was because I was not able to get the quality that I once was able to get from the dealers that I had contacts with. And so I had to make new contacts. So like I was working um, at like a convenience store, a wholesale convenience store place down in Everett. My father owned the building. He thought if I worked for his landlord, if he worked for one of his tenants, you know, because I didn't, I couldn't keep a good job now. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't, restaurant world wasn't working out. Um, So now I needed to be down in their area because my father owns a business down in that same area but like I didn't want to work for his company so it was like okay you can be the cashier or whatever and so I ended up just having like mediocre basic jobs you know what I mean and like just doing whatever I could to just like shut everyone up and during my lunch break you know like if there was like a cool customer that would come in I'd be like hey listen and I'd give them like a little note and be like if you could help me let me know and just find people to help me get what I needed But then the quality of Coke was not as good. So I learned how to cook it. I'm not going to, I don't think this is appropriate to like really get into the whole thing. Yeah. And then you smoke crack and that's how you get, you get the crack and then you end up smoking it so that it's a concentrated piece so that it's really more powerful. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But then that brought me to my knees more than anything else. Um, Crack. What what happened? What happened? 
It just, it just, it just was a whole nother level that I didn't even know existed with addiction. I had no clue. Like I had already had a problem with addiction, but then you take that and I'm, it's like, it's like alcohol did it for me. Absolutely. But now my disease is way more progressed where I need like way more effect, you know, and it was so powerful and it was just, you know, it was just disgusting. Mm. I'll tell you that because it was like, just, it was, it was just, it was just sickening mm. because it's like you take one hit and it's not enough mm-hmm. you know and it's like and maybe at that first time that you do it you're chasing that feeling forever mm. and it's just never gonna come back to okay. like that and so you know I can't even tell you how much money I stole from my family um, trying in, in order to get the, the amount that I would need and just my father had given me a business opportunity he thought that that would fix me and so by this time I, he doesn't know how sick I am he's literally in delusion and, I, and the fact that he couldn't see it, it just tells you that he really wanted to tell himself that I was going to be okay if he could just give me all the tools that I needed. He really couldn't see it, was, even though you no, could. He was doing the best he could with it what was he sad. had. It's sad. It's not his fault. And the no. thing was, he couldn't have even done anything differently anyways. And he just kept hoping, okay, we're going to set her up with the business. And so now this time, it's uh, this business that's in Winthrop, and it's a fish, a bait and tackle store. And so it's seasonal. So he thought if we could make good money throughout the summer then I could have the time off in the winter in order to like go to Florida with them or do whatever that they you know whatever they wanted to do and the thing was was that it was something I never really wanted to do but because I had no other option I was like yeah sure dad I'll do this and he really thought he was helping me and I wasn't getting honest and so it was a lot of money that would go in through there and I just stole so much money and he started you know being able to notice it he couldn't unnotice and he sectioned me, you know, like several times I ended up being sectioned. And this is now after the fact that they bought different insurance in order to get me the best help that I needed. And that was um, a cleaned hospital. So yep. like that was considered the best in the country. And I had been there a lot. So because every time the summer season would end, I had nothing else to really do but think about me on me. Mm. And so I was going crazy because I wasn't productive. I didn't have a way to be useful. I didn't know how to live my life. And so I'd go back every single time, 10 times a million back into the psych wards with serious depression now. So now it wasn't just about me trying to use the card to play um, to, to one over on people I wanted to die mm-hmm. like I didn't want to live my quality of life was horrible and the people that I was surrounding myself with whatever were left were like the less than the low like mm-hmm. people that you don't want your daughter hanging out with you mm-hmm. know and like I didn't you know my parents didn't know I was hanging out with these people it was just real 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 bottom of the barrel mm-hmm. stuff and grimy situations crack houses you know just like not good yeah. um, and they were tracking me they were trying to find me and places you know and I would leave my phone in certain places so that they would think that I was at my boyfriend's house or whoever I would say I was at and it just it was just insanity for them you know and they really didn't know what I was up to or what I was doing but they now they couldn't unknow because so much money was missing and so many spoons and like just too many things (laughs) you know um and then they ended up putting me in McLean's hospital um sectioning me once I took um like $20,000. So they ended up finding me and they said, get in the car, we're bringing you to McLean's. And they ended up, you know, getting me in there with my therapist help or the psychiatrist help. And they ended up just like putting me in there. And I had, I could sign myself out after um, like 72 hours, I think. But I must have had a moment of clarity um, because honestly, it was like, 
my father's like, you're not going back to the business. He's like, I don't know what you're going to do. He goes, but this is something that you need to do for treatment. He goes, you do what you want after this. He goes, if you leave here, he goes, there's nowhere that there's no place you can go. You know, he's like, you have no place to come home. Um, he's like, but you can get further treatment if you stay there and we'll help you. And so I just was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I thought I was just going to escape and then kill myself. But I had to be in there for three days. And so by the third day, I just like had a moment of clarity. I was like, all right, I'm going to get further treatment. And so from there, it was the residential program. And that residential program was affiliated with McLean's Hospital. And they um, had you go to groups throughout the day. And then at night, you would have to go to a 12-step program. They didn't care what 12-step program. But it was a locked ward as well. So like, even though you were allowed out for a certain amount of hours, you had to get a slip sign saying that you went to this meeting or whatever. Okay. And then if you came back and you like looked funny or if you smelled like alcohol, you were out. And so I ended up really trying to do it and I was um, this counselor there uh, he was amazing he he really told me that not all AA meetings are the same and why don't you check out this AA meeting on Saturday night in Brookline and because I had to go to a meeting anyway I was down for it you know um, it, and so I ended up going to this meeting and this was like unlike any other AA meeting that I had ever experienced in my life and because I had been to AA for a long time I thought I knew what it was I had no idea that there was going to be a meeting with young people who were happy, who were talking about the 12 steps, who had a message of weight and depth, who were talking about recovery and a solution out of the big book, which is like our text, you know, and like I couldn't even believe that that was like something that these people were talking about. But at the same time, I wanted nothing to do with it yeah. still. I still was not where I was like, oh, this is great. Let me do this. Yeah. I had a lot of stuff. And this is in 2011 was when I first got to this AA meeting where I stopped started to realize that maybe I didn't understand fully what AA was. Huh. Um, and that was an awakening point too. And like looking back, it was definitely God doing for me what I could not do for myself because what they do with that format, like for that meeting is they look for the new person and they randomly pick you to speak. And it's not that you're the speaker from the podium fully telling your story, but you get up there and you get to introduce yourself and you get to say a little bit for like three to five minutes and then you get to sit back down. And I couldn't even even look out my eyes were wide open but like there was so much fear there like my eyes were like like I was awake and but I just was petrified because they randomly picked me and I just managed I don't even know how I did it got up to the front and I was so scared so scared but I ended up saying my name I'm an alcoholic I can't stop relapsing and I want to die and like that was just something that like I had no idea I was even gonna say to a public room first of all. <laughs> yeah. And then I sat back down and like all of these women during the break came up to me and they offered me their phone numbers and I wanted nothing to do with yeah. it though. I was horrified. Yeah. I was like, get away from me. I'm friends with the guys. I don't talk to girls. Like girls, you know, aren't my people because I was a tomboy, you know, and it was just like, yeah, it, was just it was just so much. And I was rough around the edges from different area. Like I just didn't think that these people even had what I had or could understand anything about what I had gone through yep. and like knew like like I thought maybe because a lot of them were talking about I was judging I totally yeah. judged yeah. and compared myself to mm -hmm. everyone for so long yeah. and they had no idea what it was like to drink and drug the way that I did because they're just you know trying to go to college and getting kicked out like no like I'm 31 and these people are like 24 you know and yeah. it was like comparing yeah out every time. yeah absolutely but there was one woman 
who was um, only two years younger than me, who had five years sober. And she was from the Midwest, and she was talking about how she used to um, smoke meth. And so because I was such a vicious crack addict at this point, I was like, oh, because meth wasn't big in our area, but it was big where she was from. Yeah. And so you it, got some identification. I really could identify, because she wasn't bullshitting me, and I knew that. And she had a message of weight and depth, and she told me the truth, and she told me like it was, and she told me that she could help me. And the thing was, was that I still didn't want her help but she called me the next day and I ended up answering and by that time when I answered she was like okay she was like why don't we just meet and just talk for a little bit she says, come get coffee and then come wow, to this meeting what with a me. woman well and that's what I decided to do so I met her and I talked with her and she would listen to like what I had gone through and what I was up against and how I couldn't stay stopped and that I know that I need to because I really knew now so like now I actually didn't want to continue doing what I was doing I actually wanted to do differently but I didn't know how and so she was telling me how and so she was telling me that the 12 steps were designed to put your hand in that power's hand and that's why we do the 12 steps because you lack the power and that you on your own thinking or your own will don't have enough power to stay stopped she's like you have no defense against the first drink every single time you're gonna pick up again and I couldn't even believe that she like knew because it was like and it was almost like it was a breath of fresh air because all these years I'm told that there's something wrong with me and that there's like you know like your mental defective or like you can't you know and, I, and like there's real no real treatment for it and then she tells and I thought I was a bad person you know and then she explains the doctor's opinion to me and she explains what the disease is and she tells me that it's a disease that it's not um, about being a bad person or a good person, that you're literally just afflicted and that this is what the treatment is when you've tried everything else and nothing else has worked. She's like, this is what has worked for me. And I was just like, okay. Like I was interested, but I was still hesitant, but I was interested. But that's a change yeah. though. You know, a change doesn't have to be a total 180. Right. No, you know, you, you yeah. had a crack yeah. in the way you yeah. think right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. can change the way we think. Like there's so yep. many studies that are going on right now yep. about the brain. Yep. You know, 10 years ago, yep. they didn't think that you you could change the connectivity in your breath. Forget what they're called, but like synapses. Yeah, something or, or like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. They yeah. they didn't think that those you could rewire. Yeah, rewire them, but Absolutely. you can rewire Absolutely. your brain. Like they know that. Yeah. And I listened to your story, yeah. and I can clearly yeah. see yeah. right now yeah, those yeah. little cracks yeah. that were coming in. Just when you said I didn't want to do it, but I was interested. Yeah. No. You know, you said something else before, like um, it it, it was different this time when yeah. you went into this meeting. But yeah, yeah. Like yeah. so, I'm I'm listening to yeah. you as you slowly are changing. Yeah. No, and that's and that's what happened. And so then though, the thing was was that she actually um, started taking me through the steps. I want to say something quick. Yeah, because yeah. you're changing, I'm not saying in other people, yeah. relapse is, 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 it happens. So even though you have these changes, yeah. you could relapse, you know yeah. what I mean? But I'm just saying oh, yeah. from- She from planted my, seeds. You know, you plant seeds, yeah. yeah. I'm not saying, I just don't want people to get the idea that once you start you know, changing your mind, you have a relapse, you're cooked. No, no. Oh, I relapse a lot. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You change your mind. Sometimes you might have a relapse. You get back up on your feet. You learn, yeah. You learn more about what to do versus what not to do and what you could have done differently instead if you don't die in the process. That is what the scary part is, though. That's why relapse is scary, Mm -hmm. but relapse helped me once I learned what the disease was and then I realized that I was still relapsing because self-knowledge avails us nothing. That is what the book talks about and that's what this woman was explaining to me was that 
every single time that I ended up picking up again, she was like, this is why she's like, you need to start praying on your knees. Mm. This is why you need to start going to the meetings on a regular basis. Mm. Like I go to, this is why you need to get a home group. This is why you need to get a service position. She started calling me out on all the stuff. And this is why you need to write a four step. Now, maybe you'll start facing these things that are blocking you because unless you, unless you want to get, unless you want to face these things, you're never going to get through it. She's like, you have to get through it and you have to get past it. It's never going to go away. Like you were saying, sweeping it under the rug. Like I just thought like, okay, I'll pick and choose what I want to do. And the thing was, because I had a sponsor that would tell me the truth, she told me the truth. Thank God, because I was a victim to everything and I couldn't manipulate this one. (laughs) You know, like I was like, poor me and my father who wanted me sober more than anyone else he would say to me tell your sponsor that you can't write a four step you got learning disabilities doesn't she understand that I'm like dad I know she doesn't get it she doesn't get it I've tried to tell her dad she said to me stop talking to your family about your program because they don't understand and I and I was like like blown away like by this lady like she really didn't care about how I felt and I was glad for it not that she didn't care but she wasn't gonna tippy toe over it I needed to be smashed over the head with a two by four you know and she just kept calling me out like I lived in uh, Danvis at the time and so I'm meeting her in Brookline Boston meetings because not all A meetings are the same and those meetings had a message of weight and depth and I was going to a bunch of different meetings in that area and that's where I I learned my recovery and I am grateful for it, but I would travel, you know, two hours and, and that, but, but during that, it's like, what would I do to get the crack that I needed? What, where would I drive to? Well, what would I do to get that? So she was like, listen, she's like, if the AA meetings in your area are not talking about what we're talking about here, then start driving to this area. Start making this a priority. Start making this a way of life. And she, and the thing was though, I ended up back in more sober houses while I was working with this woman. And I and I was in another sober house in, in Revere this time. And this was my third one in six months because she told me that I was only picking and choosing certain things, but I wasn't willing to do all of it. And I needed more treatment. I needed more, um, like I needed more structure. structure. And so um, my parents were helping me pay for it. They were, you know, they were like seeing that maybe there's a little bit of a difference here. So now they're back paying to help me back with the treatment centers again and this time I meant differently and this is the thing the third one now within six months my father says to me he goes this is your last chance he goes now I've told you this before he goes but this time I mean it he goes your mother is listening to those doctors they're telling us that we're enabling you and that we gotta cut with the sharp knife because I was still having the psychiatrist family meetings whatever we were doing you know and um and he's like, and we got to cut with the sharp knife. And the thing was, was that he had tears in his eyes. He's like, please, please don't fuck this up. He's like, I want, like, he's like, I love you so much. But please don't fuck this up. And so I could have been hooked up to a lie detector test. This is the truth. This is what the disease is. And I meant it when I said it. And I would have passed with flying colors. And I said to him, dad, don't worry. I got it this time. I'm going to do it. Thing was, I thought, I really thought that I wasn't going to go back to how I was. I really thought this time I'm definitely going to do it. Everything that this woman has taught me in AA, everything that I know I need to do, whatever, I'm going to do it this time. The thing was, I still 
couldn't understand how much I really lacked the power. And that is about step one, how much my life was unmanageable and how powerless I really was. After all I had been through, I still thought somewhere in this brain of mine, which, you know, should have been totally locked up somewhere, knew differently than what this woman was telling me. And so I kept doing it my way. I kept finding ways on how to do it my way. Started dating still, you know, like whatever it was. I was still using outside things to feel better. I wasn't really sold on the God idea. I really thought that God wasn't going to be the answer. And this woman started really helping me look at God in a different way. My own conception. That's what this is about. This is not about believing in anyone else's. And, um... And she said to me, you can't tell me AA doesn't work for you because you haven't been doing the whole program. You've only been picking and choosing certain things. And she says, you are the real alcoholic. And the real alcoholic is doomed unless they have a psychic change. And she said, and that is what the 12 steps are designed to do. And you have not even finished your fourth step. You can't tell me this doesn't work. So that's when I finally really did an honest and thorough third step. So even though we had gotten on our knees together and held hands, and really what the third step is about is making a decision just to move forward with the rest of the steps. That was when I was like, fine. You know what? If you, I said, this is what happened. On May 4th, 2013, was my sobriety date. And that was when I called her up because I had relapsed again. And I had said to her, I can't do this anymore. That promise that I had made to my parents about not killing myself anymore. Like I just, I like I'm now I'm going to do it where I'm not going to get caught. I'm going to go in the woods somewhere. Like no one's going to find me. Like I just have to, I can't live anymore. I can't do this. And she was like, she was like, listen, she was like, if you try this for one year, the way it's laid out in the big book, and you take all of my suggestions, then you can tell me that AA doesn't work for you. Mm. But until you've done that, you can't tell me this isn't working. And so I ended up really making a, a real third step because I made a decision even though I thought I was different and I didn't think this was going to work for me because that's what I told her. I said, fine, I know this won't work. I said, I'll do whatever you say. I know this isn't going to work for me. I know I'm different. I started to take all her suggestions and had small moments in my own skin at three months sober. So it wasn't overnight. It took a long time. And three months is not really a long time in the grand scheme of things. But when you're first getting sober, three months is like a total miracle, Mm -hmm. like unbelievable, especially for a girl like me, like just unbelievable. And where I actually was feeling like I was going to be okay, like in my own skin, like sober, I couldn't even believe it. Like I couldn't even believe that I was even having those kind of thoughts you know Mm. and um and like you were saying about like rewiring the brain like something was starting to shift and rearrange and start to change and I was like and it was not easy it was really painful and I've had a long long um period of painful sobriety because I had a lot of baggage I had a lot of things not everyone has that but um I wasn't on a pink cloud and like I was talking about earlier in our talk about pain being a huge motivator like I didn't want to ever go back to where I came Mm -hmm. from and where I thought that maybe now there was something to this because I was having small moments where I had never felt those feelings of feeling like I was going to be okay I just kept building upon that and and I and I ended up getting a year you know and I couldn't even believe it and it was like unbelievable but the work does not stop Mm -hmm. you know there is no cure for this thing and so I definitely am so connected to my first step where I never want to go back to where I came from so 
I really try to dig deep and I stay in the middle of this thing. And like I have had so many service positions in AA and it's not because I'm like think I'm awesome it's because I really want to be accountable I really had a shift where I was like oh my god my thinking is so skewed like I can't trust my own thinking because I'm told that I have a disease that lies to me in my own voice and then that relationship with the higher power that I had to really dig deep and start cultivating and believing in I had so much prejudice I can't even tell you like I had to do a lot of work I had to get honest about the fact that like God for me was very punishing even though I thought like everyone else was saying that their God was so big and so powerful I didn't believe that sober so I still had to find ways in order how to to get past those old ideas that were so deeply rooted in my brain Mm. like I really had to start learning it how to think about it differently and I read a lot of outside literature not just AA that helped grow my conception Mm -hmm. and in the beginning like we were talking about like music like literally helped me feel like I was gonna be okay and that is what I felt connected to for a long time where I actually could feel joy when I would listen to music and that could be where I could find God and that was mind blowing to me because I thought it had to be some old guy in the sky punishing God and that is not the case whatever works for you you know and it's like and then you know reading We Agnostics with my sponsor like I started to realize so much like yeah I can't see electricity no one can but it doesn't mean it's not there so why do I think I can understand God too right so I have to stop thinking I know and just start trying to trust and believe in the process. And, yeah. you know, and that's how it started for me. And it and it took a long, long time to even get to where I'm at. But I always remain teachable because I really know that I do have this disease and that this is a gift, you know. And so I keep seeking ways to do more, to uncover and discard, you know. Um, you know, it, it talks about three simple ideas that we got to do, which is clean house, trust God, and help others. Mm. And that's how I try to live my life today with steps 10, 11, and 12. You know, to the daily basis, to the best of my ability, with God's help. Because I lack the power to do any of this on my own. I need a lot of God. My brain generates so much suffering. Like, those outside issues that I was talking about with the mental illness stuff, those those are not gone. And what I mean by that is that alcoholism, the more that I treated it with a spiritual approach, yeah, I got to straighten out physically and mentally as well, but it doesn't mean that I don't automatically sometimes still get depressed or have you know self-pity or think that my life should be different, whatever it is, but the treatment of it is no more for me, and believe me, I am not saying what other people need to do. This Within three years of my sobriety, I finally got off all the psych meds, and I wasn't getting getting off of them in order to um, think that I was not needing them, but it was because I still felt like killing myself three years in sobriety, doing this work, trying to figure stuff out and trying to learn how to live this new design of living one day at a time. It's not like I just learned it, go through the steps once, and then I automatically know how to live like this, especially with where I've gone from and come from. It took a lot of time. So I went through the steps once thoroughly every year, and then I'm taking women through the steps, and I'm learning about, listen, 
listening to other speakers on how they're applying the steps and my sponsor and going through big book step studies and like workshops and like learning more about how to practice steps one, two, and three, you know, and how to do a more thorough four step and like how to really get honest and do a fist step. And then like looking at my defects of character, like how willing am I really to give them up? You know, like some of them I wasn't willing to give up. Like I still had a hard time with food stuff for a long time in sobriety, you know, but like they were infinitely better than where I came from, you know, like I wasn't smoking crack anymore. So what if I had to eat a gallon of ice cream in the beginning? You know, like who cares? Like, are you Mm. kidding me? Mm. And so it's like all of this stuff starts to get right sized. Mm. And that's what step seven with humility, you know, like I don't really, I don't really know how not to be human, you know, and so now I get to be perfectly human and I get to take corrective measures when I do this work, when I take personal inventory and start looking at, you know, my nightly review, which is the 11th step. A lot of people think the 11th step is the 10th step. The 10th step is what we do during our day. You know, we're watching our thoughts all day long. We're asking God to remove them. And that's the prayer in that, that one paragraph that's, that's written there on page. 84 and then we're literally turning our attention you know and that's what has helped me treat my depression and all of those other things you know because I couldn't actually um, do that with synthetic meds alone and so like I said I got off all my psych meds because I still felt like killing myself and I knew that they were no longer helping me and if I ever needed to go back I could and those medicines that I were on were non-habit forming I had to get clear about what meds I was on and what meds I was not supposed to take because of the doctor's opinion in the big book and the doctor's opinion in the big book talks about any form at all I cannot take like alcohol in any form not just you know um, alcohol in, in the in the liquid form and so for instance like what I mean by that is that you know I was prescribed um Ativan for my anxiety. I had an anxiety disorder. And that is something that's only a band-aid effect. You know, it gives me an instant effect when I take it. And I'm going to need more as time goes on in order to get the same effect. And so that is a crutch. That is something that I had to get clear on and ask my doctor to help me come off of in order to actually be able to have the real psychic change, the spiritual experience, because it kept me blocked from that pain of really having my fire under my ass where I was actually going to be willing to do the work that was necessary in order to go to God, you know, in order to really help people. Um, if I'm on Ativan, then I'm comfortable, you know, and then the thing was for me, I am a real alcoholic and so I'll abuse anything. And so Ativan, I didn't always just take it as prescribed, you know, it was more about, okay, I'll take it as prescribed and I thought I was going to do that, but then, oh, um, a bad day happens at work or an emotional outburst so my boyfriend breaks up with me and there I'm reaching for a two, three Ativans, you know, and so that's the thing, like the ad, I don't do that with my antidepressants. I don't take two, three antidepressants in the moment in order to feel better. That is the difference between what a medicine like Ativan can do versus what an antidepressant can do, which takes two, three weeks in order for you to get to maybe have a chemical imbalance shifted, you know? And so that was what I had to learn about the disease as I had to learn to learn what was being an own advocate for my own recovery because not all the doctors understand fully either. And it's not that the doctors are bad people, it's they're misinformed as well. And only one alcoholic can help another alcoholic. And that is what the book is talking about. I want to say something quick. Wow. I mean, thank you so much. Two things. Yeah. As prescribed by a doctor, right? So find a doctor who is recommended from somebody you trust That's what I tell people. Find a recommended doctor because what are you going to do when you 
put build a house, you're not going to just go to the yellow pages and pick out a a, yeah. a carpenter. Yeah, you're going to find somebody who's going to do a good job who you trust because yeah. you just said it. Doctors are regular people. Some yep. some are good, some are shitty. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I say find a doctor you trust. I also say if you know prescribed by a doctor. But now I heard you just explain it very well. And um, some people have a difficult time taking it as prescribed by a doctor, right? Well, yeah. And this is the thing, like over time, like, so maybe I think I'm going to take it prescribed from a doctor the way that it's, you know, like the way that they're asking me to do it. Mm. But if I'm the real alcoholic, like, and I'm using those things in order to feel better, Mm -hmm. there's going to be a day that comes when I'm actually going to take more than what is prescribed. I have to get honest. For me, for me, I don't know what other people have to do, but I do know that it sets off the phenomenon of craving for me. Yes. You know, because like nothing's ever enough. I have the hole in the soul. You know, I'm the real alcoholic. Like nothing is ever enough. I'll abuse anything in time. So, you know, I tried the, the marin, marin, marijuana maintenance plan. You know, I was like, okay, maybe I can't drink. Maybe I can't do serious drugs, but I could smoke weed. Yeah. I can't smoke weed like a normal person. No. I do everything alcoholically. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to say. So I have to know the truth about myself. If you're just a heavy drinker, you know, maybe you can take the Ativan as prescribed. I don't know what works for you, right? Whatever. But We're for not me, doctors. No, yes. right. For me, I can't. Yep. I can't take Gabby Petten. I can't take um, Ritalin for my ADD. I, I can't take Adderall. I need to know this. I am seriously so beyond human aid that the synthetic meds that are going to give me an instant fix or become habit forming are something that I need to get honest with that the doctors don't get. That is incredible that you've learned that about yourself. Absolutely. And I give you so, I really give you a little, like. It's freedom though. It's freedom. Ugh. The truth will set you free. And I had no idea what I was up against until I had someone that understood the disease and could break down what the book said. This wasn't her opinion. She's an amazing woman. Absolutely. Is she around? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's got like 12 years now. I'd yeah. love to meet her. Yeah. Wow. I mean, you you seem great. Like, you're doing well? I mean, I'm doing well. I mean, even in a pandemic. Like, I mean, this is the thing. I stay in the middle of this. I have a lot of sponsees. I um, do a lot of service. I ask when I'm, you know, to speak when, when I'm asked. And I, I don't really necessarily always like to, you know. I just do the things where God has, has assigned me to play the role that I'm assigned to play. It's not about what I think anymore. And the more that I learn about how to practice this work, the more I get to understand what God's will is sure. versus what God's will yeah. isn't. And I know God wants me to participate in my own life. I know God wants me to help his kids. I know God wants me to treat my alcoholism and take care of myself. And like the least I get to do is try to pass my story on because I will never be able to give back what has been so freely given to me. AA does not pay me to say this. Like it is a miracle that this has worked when nothing else has. And a lot of people don't understand the program of action that is necessary in order to take. It didn't just happen no, overnight. It takes work. It took work. It's you, called work for a reason, you know, and I had to get honest about that. And it wasn't a bad thing. The thing is, is like someone, you find out someone has treatment, you know, for cancer and it's about going and getting, um, no, 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 I'm good. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot if you want. No, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, like the treatment for cancer is, um, 
you know, chemo, right? Like I just had an aunt pass away from it, you know? And like, she doesn't think twice about going to have to get the chemo because she thinks that maybe that'll help her, you know? Like even though she's going to lose her hair, even though like there's going to be consequences with it, she's going to feel sick, whatever it is. No one ever second guesses if the doctor tells you to go and get the chemo treatment. But with alcoholism, oh, a spiritual solution? Uh, how bad's the alcoholic death? Oh, you know what? Spiritual solution or die an alcoholic death? Uh, maybe I can just manage it. Maybe it won't be that bad. Maybe that's not going to happen to me. Maybe I'm different because I have a disease. It's going to lie to me in my own voice. It's going to tell me a different story. And so I have to look at where it keeps bringing me back and back over and over again. The same patterns, the same types of where I'm falling asleep to the fact that like I'm still picking up no matter what. And it's totally something that I'm never going to be able to control. Mm-hmm. No matter what, mm. all bets are off. Mm. Um, and that is the thing. It's But it's like, okay, you know, uh, go to AA and live this simple program of action. Eh. But you know what? Now I get to do this. This is not, this is not a chore. This is given me freedom. This has given me a way out. I can't even believe it. And I don't have to go to the doctor's office anymore. You know, like I really don't. Like I'm not a slave to the therapist or going to psych wards or whatever else it was, treatment centers anymore. You know, like it's like I'm like two different people in one lifetime. So, I mean, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. I just want to say two things you touched on. Yeah. Um, that meeting type of meeting where a newcomer comes and like, I, I, I love that, yeah. that it's a meeting where the person's forced to raise their hand because whoever's new, if there's somebody new listening right now, like we don't know who you are. Right. We're not mind readers. Right. And we need to know who you are to help you. You know, it's so important. So if you can get your hand up, if, if you're new and you're listening to this, just say your name. Like just say just say your name say and and if if it, the magic words the three magic words I need help you know totally even on Zoom if you're on Zoom chat someone up you know yeah. you have to be an advocate because yeah. especially on Zoom people can't see that you're like uncomfortable or by yourself yeah. in person yeah you're more likely to be able to look for the newcomer yeah. but at the same time it's still we don't know we're not a mind reader like you're saying yeah I had this one other thing come up the other the other day too and I'd love your opinion on it seeing how involved you are it's what what's your feeling of being a member of a group what does that mean to you oh so it's a like so like if I'm a home if it's my home group. Um, What's a home group? Okay, so a home group is a meeting that I attend to every week when it meets, and I have a service position in there, and I'm accountable to that meeting. Um, So, like, for instance, like, I have a home group. It meets um, at Out of the Basement, it's called. Um, It's on um, 15 Newberry Street in Boston. It's at 730 on a Sunday night. And, like, my service position is assistant treasurer, you know? And, like, that group is really strong in being able to give anyone that wants um, a position a position. All you have to do is stay for the business meeting and like if you're new and you don't really know if you can handle being the assistant treasurer don't worry there's greeting positions there's chair set up there's so my question is if you go to that meeting as a newcomer but don't have a job yeah is oh, it, we can still be a home group, but then you stay for the next business meeting and you get a service position. You can you can say it's your home group without a service position. This is what I'm asking. But if you want the difference between having a real home group, not just in theory, then you would be participating okay. in the group to help out. Yes. I got it. And now what would you, how, when does a person say I'm a member of a certain group? Well, that's the thing. Like, 
I mean, every group operates differently and they have the right to. So it depends. But like, if you want to say that you're a member of Out of the Basement, then you can say that you're a member of that group. That's what I think. But the actions are the difference because you don't want to like delude yourself. You know what I'm saying? So like you can say you're a member of X, Y, and Z, but okay, where's your service position? Like are it. you showing up every week? Are you being accountable? You know, because once you start going on a regular basis, people are going to start to know who you are. And that's how you get connected. You know, I had to go to the groups, even though I didn't feel a part of, to actually, until I started to feel a part of. You know, and then the same one, it was important to have a schedule, the same meeting, so that I could start to get connected. I couldn't just bounce around when I felt like it certain ones when I felt like then it. you don't go. No, it's not the same, because you need to build a network. It's very important. You can't do this on your own. No. Nope. You really can't. And there's a lot of people out there who will be happy to help. You know, you just got to look for the ones that are offering their hands. You know, there's a lot of a lot of different meetings. If, if you don't like the meeting that you're going to, please check out another one. Yep. Like there is so many. And it's tough now. So this will be, yeah. you know, I'll put this out soon. And if, you know, I don't know, maybe somebody will listen. So new meetings are opening up like. Yeah. It's, it's gonna be it's gonna be good soon. I mean, I love the in person meetings. Me too. I love Zoom. Like yep. Zoom has been great for yo. Zoom's been, been beneficial great, right? for a lot of ways. I have a sponsor in Texas. You know, she she heard me speak. I've been speaking all around the country when I'm asked. You just never know. You know how you can hear a message, but at the same time, some people have kids. You know what I mean? Like yeah. whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. But for me, I need to have a balance of both. It's not just Zoom for me, yeah, me at all. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that yeah. opening up. And and yeah. if you listen and you'll go online go if you're in boston you go to aa like aa meetings in person and you'll get central services sure. or whatever aa.org you know you a, can yeah. get any you can get anything you want in any boston, state AA. right yeah, yeah yeah totally yeah and internationally there's there's, there's uh meetings everywhere yeah everywhere yeah but if you want to look for information, yeah, Google yeah. AA meetings in my area. Yeah. You know, that's the simplest, fastest way and yeah. you will find it. Yeah. And stick around if you knew, like, if like, like, like you said, if, you know, try another meeting. I love how you said that. Like, yeah, yeah try, definitely. Like yeah. that's fucking important because you yeah. could get turned off. Yeah, totally. And and try another one. Try another one. Guess what? Try another one. Yeah. And then try another one. Yeah. And then, but just keep going. And, and a year, I think, is a good... I mean, Timeline. it seems like a lot, you know, we don't like to shoot forward, but like give it a, give don't it a just try it for two weeks and then no, say it doesn't it work. You know, yeah. got to give yourself a chance. If you want to change yeah. your life, right. like right. you've just proven, yeah. to, you've just yeah. laid out how a life can be changed. Totally. You change your it's life. It's a miracle. I'm, uh, it's so, it's, it's great. To, you know, it's good to know you. I appreciate nice you coming you in and yeah. sharing you your so story. Much. I think it's going to help a lot of people. I hope so, but uh, thank you. Yeah. All right, my friend. Bye. Done.